This morning we are in the Gospel of John chapter 17. Tom's going to be teaching on 4 and 5, but we're going to read 1 through 5 for the context. John 17, 1 through 5. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we listen to our Lord pray that you would glorify him. We want to do the same thing, Father. Use us to bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us to know him more truly as he is this morning as we read and study your word and worship you in so doing. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be back with you. I was just talking with Rick self about the fact that when I'm away from this task doing other things, I always want to get back to it. And it's nice to have that uh, have an assignment that you that you just love to do. Um, it's it's marvelous to be back with you, and it's marvelous to be back in the Gospel of John with you, and it's marvelous to be in this passage. <laughs> uh, seeing that more than a month has elapsed since we looked into the first three verses of this amazing prayer of Jesus in John 17, I asked Carrie to read the first five verses for context, and we are going to talk about the first three, but we're going to spend most of our time on verses four and five. If that strikes you as, as rather sluggish progress through this prayer, uh, let me draw your attention to the fact that throughout the ages of Christianity, many, many faithful preachers have considered this to be the greatest prayer ever prayed on this earth. Thomas Manton, 17th century Puritan pastor, preached 45 messages on this chapter. Philip Melanchthon, the reformer, preached 41 messages. I'm going to preach only 39. <laughs> now, seriously, I I, uh, I plan to preach about four. That might get adjusted a little, but I but I promise we'll move on to the next chapter sooner than either of those guys did. This marvelous prayer of Jesus is deeply personal. Jesus is directly addressing His Father on the eve of His own crucifixion, likely no more than an hour or so before His arrest by the temple authorities. And as He prays this prayer, Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen that night and the next day. He knows that this is the very hour for which He came from the glories of heaven to earth and took on humanity for this hour. The impassioned request that Jesus makes of His Father in this prayer go to the very heart of His relationship with His Father, of His relationship with His disciples, and of His relationship with all who would come to faith through the witness of those disciples. And that includes us who believe today in this room. The prayer is deeply personal, but it is also, also intentionally shared. 
Jesus didn't go aside to a solitary place to pray this prayer. He was walking on the road from the upper room in Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he stopped along the way, and he had been speaking directly to his disciples for the last several chapters, and then he turns his eyes toward heaven, and he, he directly addresses his Father while his disciples are still standing right beside him. See, Jesus wanted them to hear and to know what He was saying to His Father. And, and because of the, the faithful and careful record of this prayer that John hands to us, and, and thankfully to the Holy Spirit for preserving it for the last 20 centuries, Jesus is drawing you and me into this incomparable conversation with His Father. He means for us to hear and to know and to believe every word that He spoke to His Father on this momentous night. There are three parts to this real Lord's Prayer. First, in verses 1-5, through five, is Jesus' prayer for Himself. It's not a selfish prayer. Uh, it is a prayer for the Father's glory through the Son and for the Son's glory with the Father. Then in verses 6 through 19 is his prayer for his disciples. And finally, in verses 20 to 26, is his prayer for everyone who would come to faith through the witness of his disciples. Beloved, that, again, that includes you if you trust in the Lord. If you believe that what Jesus did for lost sinners, he did for you, then He talks about you in this prayer a little later. And by the way, He already knew your name. It was already in His book. For the first message that, uh, that I presented a few weeks ago, I focused on verse 3. I focused on Jesus' definition of eternal life. He said to His Father, this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's very, very important because real life the life that every believer possesses right now and forever is relationship with God. That's what real life is. In fact, nothing else is real life. There are many, there are many peripherals. There are many things that come with that. But the essence of life is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And that's not to know about Him. That's to personally, intimately know Him. But that definition of life from the lips of Jesus comes right in the midst of a request that He's making of His Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. And He means now, on earth, that the Son may glorify You. The next time that Jesus comes from heaven to earth, it will be as conquering King and righteous Judge. He will establish His kingdom on earth he will execute the terrible wrath of God against all who have rejected Him. And finally, He will reconcile the things in the heavens with the things on earth and make everything new forever. But His mission the first time He came was not to judge, but to save. 
John 3, 16 and 17, most people know the first of those two verses, but listen to both of them together. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Accomplishing that salvation was the capstone. It was the culmination. It was the point of Jesus' first coming. How was it that the Father was just about to glorify the Son so that the Son could glorify the Father? It was by sending His Son to the cross to accomplish the salvation of all of His elect by giving them eternal life. In verse 2, Jesus says the Father had given Him authority over all mankind, but, but He would not give the gift of eternal life to all mankind. He would give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to Him. That's exactly what He says in verse 2. That included these eleven disciples. It included all those who have believed the Father's witness to the Son in that generation. All who kept, that is, guarded and treasured His Word. The gift that Jesus came to give extended though not just to the disciples and to those who came to believe during His earthly ministry. It extends to every man, woman, and child in every age who has trusted God's Word concerning His Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus. And by the way, that's what the whole Bible in both Testaments is about. The Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. Now it was time for Jesus to accomplish that salvation, to give eternal life to all of those whom the Father had given to Him. When Jesus prayed in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. The glory of which Jesus was speaking was the glory of the cross. It was the glory of the cross. And this is the greatest and most worldview changing paradox of all time. Because the cross of Jesus looks anything but glorious. And yet it is the single most glorious event this world has ever witnessed. The humiliation and the suffering and the death of Jesus looks like the worst of all possible defeats. And by the way, that's exactly how the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the event, declared that God's own covenant people Israel would interpret the event. He said, we ourselves considered Him, the suffering servant of God, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But that statement occurs in a paragraph that talks not about defeat, but about victory. It says, surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace fell upon Him and by His scourging, by His wounds, we are healed. All of us, every one of us like sheep, 
has turned astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Friends, that's not a defeat. God's Word in both Testaments declares the death of Jesus to be the greatest and most glorious victory ever won. While Satan and all of those who had ever been allied with Satan stood on the sidelines on that day at Golgotha, gloating over the humiliation and torture and crucifixion of our Lord, rejoicing in their perceived victory over the Lord of glory, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit knew full well that the victory was theirs. This had all been planned. In Colossians 2.15, the Apostle Paul declares that Jesus died on that cross and when, uh, that when Jesus died on that cross in our place, He disarmed, that's Paul's word, He disarmed every demonic and human ruler and authority who has ever raised His fist in rebellion against God. Those enemies of God thought that they were making a public display of the Son of God in a manner similar to the way the Philistines made a public display of King Saul. They killed him, they cut off his head, and they strung up his body on the wall of Beth Shan in public so everybody could look at it and he would be as disgraced as possible. But that's not what happened at the cross. Paul says there in Colossians 2 that when Jesus was nailed to that cross, the certificate of death against us was nailed to that cross with Him. And he declares that it was Jesus' enemies who were put on public display. That's what he says. Every enemy of God, including sin itself, was vanquished. And the holy and righteous God was the victor. And the cross was not the first part of Jesus' victory over sin and the curse. It was the entire victory accomplished. Fully accomplished. It was the undoing of the curse for all who trust in Jesus. And so in verses 4 and 5 of this incomparable prayer in John 17, Jesus views that victory that He was going to win the very next day as so certain, so predetermined, that it was as if it had already been done. And He makes this request of His Father in verses 4 and 5. He says, I glorified You on the earth having accomplished, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world existed. What was the work, the assignment that the Father had sent the Son to accomplish? We talked about it, but let me make sure that we're clear about this. Because the Father's assignment for His Son actually involved many tasks. The Father sent Him to fully take on our humanness, to dwell among us for 33 grueling years. He sent His Son to show us the glory of God's character by doing the Father's works and speaking the Father's words. 
He sent Jesus to fulfill perfectly the law of God every day of His days on this earth, flawlessly displaying the character of God to which that law pointed. And there were many other specific aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry, many directed toward the Jews. Jesus did all of it perfectly. But beloved, the point, the point of all that the Father had sent the Son to do the first time that He came from heaven to earth was to save lost sinners. Jesus came to give eternal life to dead people. And that's not a different assignment than all the rest that Jesus accomplished. It's the point of all the rest that Jesus accomplished. See, He had to become perfect man to save men. He had to perfectly fulfill God's law to save men. And no event in the history of the world has ever or will ever display the truth about the name, the character of our God as fully, as comprehensively, as perfectly as the death of Jesus Christ in the place of lost sinners. There at the cross, we've talked about this before, but this is good to burn in. There at the cross, we see God's holy hatred of our horrible violation of His righteous character. There at the cross, we see God's uncompromising justness as He executed the terrible penalty that we deserve because of our sin. Sin did not go unpunished. God is not unrighteous. But at the same time and in the same event, we see His boundless compassion and His amazing grace because for all whom the Father had given to the Son, the Father poured out that terrible penalty not on us, but on His own beloved Son in our place. We see at the cross a love that surpasses knowing. A love given to all those who believe, who trust the Father's witness concerning His Son, and only to those who trust that witness. At the cross, Jesus completed everything, everything that God had given Him to do. Everything required to save God's elect to the uttermost was finished at the cross. Here in John 17.4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And the word translated accomplished is from the same root and has the same meaning as the very last word that Jesus spoke on the cross before he gave up his last breath. A word that we translate with three words. It is finished. The root of that word means to perfect, to carry out completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end. My brother Brad Burton loves to say that everything, absolutely everything required for God to save us all the way was finished at the cross. Now we haven't yet fully realized that salvation. We who believe in Jesus have been freed from the penalty and from the power of sin 
But we're still waiting to experience freedom from the presence of sin. That's going to happen. But even when we have been in the presence of our holy God for a thousand years, He'll just be getting started showing us the extent of that salvation. He'll just be getting started pouring out on us the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 2.7. See, we're going to spend the rest of eternity discovering the magnitude of this salvation. But every bit of it, every bit of our everlasting salvation has already been fully secured for us. It's already ours. As was quoted this morning in the worship, as Jesus declared in John 5.24, we who believe the Father's witness concerning His Son have already crossed over out of eternal death into eternal life. Now that doesn't mean that we will not be held accountable for the way we have lived on this earth as the redeemed children of God. But what it does mean is that we will never face a judgment to qualify us for the kingdom of God because Jesus already did that. Our eternal salvation is as sure, as secure, and as unassailable right now as if we had been in the kingdom of God for 10,000 years. By the way, read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 sometimes, and you'll see Jesus that, that Paul takes us all the way from being dead to being in heaven with God without even mentioning faith. Because see, we're saved by grace through faith. It's the grace of God that saves us. Faith is the way we appropriate it. It's, it's as Calvin says, an empty vessel that's filled with Christ. On the last day, beloved, when we stand before our holy God, God is not going to take the good works that He is producing in us now as His redeemed and add on top of those the completed work of Christ and call that pile of works sufficient to prove our right to enter into His holy presence forever. It's not going to be a pile of works that qualifies us to live in the kingdom of God. It's going to be one work. The finished work of Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago. The one and only work that took us from eternal death to eternal life and that secures that life for us right now and forever is the perfect, complete, finished work of Jesus Christ. By the way, here's how Jesus, speaking through the Apostle Paul, who got His Gospel not from men, but directly from the resurrected Christ, puts it in Romans 5. So then, as through one transgression... That's the sin of Adam. There resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, that's the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God views that entire work as one work. One act of righteousness. 
that was finished when Jesus said it was finished. Condemnation belongs to all of us, the condemnation of Adam. But the justification, the free gift of perfect righteousness in the eyes of God now and forever belongs only to those who believe in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, all of the good things that Christ is now accomplishing in me, in this wretched jar of clay, and through me as His redeemed child will be to His eternal glory. God is continually at work in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's His promise to all of His children in Philippians 2.13. There is no such thing as an unchanged Christian. Old things have passed away. New things have come. But it is not it is not what Christ is doing in me and through me now that commends me to God as perfectly righteous. And that's the only commendation that will pass muster with God. It's what Christ did for me, instead of me, in spite of me, in place of me, once and for all at the cross that commends me thus to God. It is that only. It is that always. It is that forever. The object of my faith and the one and only ground of my eternal salvation is a perfect person and a perfectly finished work. Beloved, everything, absolutely everything required to bring us from eternal death to eternal life was perfectly accomplished forever when Jesus uttered that unspeakably powerful Word finished and breathed His last breath on the cross. And that brings us to verse 5 of this magnificent prayer. The Son's work to glorify His Father on earth was finished. It was perfect. It was done. And in John 17.5, Jesus views that next day's victory is already accomplished. And He makes this final request of His Father for Himself. He says, now, Father, since I have glorified You, having finished the work that You sent Me to do, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world existed. His words in verse 5 take us right back to the very first declaration in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Twice John makes sure that we understand he was in the beginning with God. To understand the full import of what John was saying in his prologue and what Jesus is saying in this prayer, we need to understand something that God said through the prophet Isaiah a long time before this about His glory. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God said, I am Yahweh. And what does that, what does that name mean? I am. And he says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another. Got it? My glory I will not give to another. He says the same thing in Isaiah 48.11. My glory I will not give to another. Yahweh does not share His glory with anyone. (laughs) 
And Jesus prays here to His Father in John 17.5 saying, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You, which I shared with You before the world existed. Yahweh does not share His glory with anyone, yet both the Father and the Son possessed and shared the same glory in eternity past. The same glory that Jesus was about to reclaim in full when He left this earth at His ascension and returned back where He came from at His Father's side. There is only one God, and His name is Yahweh. I am. He doesn't share His glory with anyone. Jesus is In John 5, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because He was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal to God. In John 10, the Jews took up stones to kill Him because He declared, I and the Father are one. In John 8, the Jews picked up stones to kill Him because He said, before Abraham existed, I am. And then as we saw in this morning's wonderful time of worship, just a little later on this same very night that Jesus, Jesus, very same night that Jesus prayed this prayer, when Judas came with the temple soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane so that they could arrest Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Whom do you seek? And Jesus said, uh, they said, uh, Jesus the Nazarene. You know, the carpenter's son from, from Galilee. And he said, I am. And they drew back and they fell to the ground. They didn't fall to the ground because he told them he was a carpenter's son. They fell to the ground because he said, I am. My friends, if anyone walks away from this study of John's Gospel unconvinced that Jesus claimed to be fully God, they cannot blame it on John and they cannot blame it on Jesus. There is only one God. He does not share His glory with anyone. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. He was here on earth for a little while, but He wasn't from around here. To redeem the souls of lost men, Jesus temporarily, temporarily left the perfection of glory and beauty and communion and fellowship that had existed from eternity past only in the eternal relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The humiliation of Jesus Christ was only for a blink in time in eternity. But the glory of Christ is from everlasting to everlasting. The glory that Jesus set aside at His first advent is a glory that mortal men have never beheld because mortal men cannot behold it. When Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, God agreed to pass by in front of Moses, but He said, sorry Moses, I'm going to put my hand between me and you because you can't see my glory. And that's actually good for you because if you did, you would die. And when 
God passed by in front of Moses, hiding His glory. What part of God's glory did Moses get? The proclamation of God's character, of God's name. In the tabernacle and later in the temple, on the one day each year when the high priest was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies through the veil where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the midst of His people, He had to do so with with the fire pan full of incense in front of Him and, and the smoke of that incense going up in front of His face to obscure His view of the glory of God lest He die. You get the picture? Mortal men cannot behold the fullness of God's glory. In John 1.18, John says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So what glory did Jesus set aside when He came from heaven to earth the first time? That's a very worthwhile question for us to ponder long and hard because it drives us to, to pondering God. But in order to answer that question with clarity, you and I would have to know things we're not allowed to know. We'd have to see things that we cannot look upon yet. But what we do know now, what we have beheld of God's glory, is all that we need to know now. And we find every bit of it in the perfect person and finished work of Jesus Christ. All of it. God calls us and desires us to know Him intimately, closely, so that our entire life is defined by that relationship, by that knowledge. You think He's withheld from us what we need to have that life? Not a chance. Jesus showed us all that we need to know about the Father. He certainly did not show us all there is to know about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's fine. Because what you and I need to know clearly here and now, think about this, is the glory that Jesus did not set aside. What we need to know is the glory that Jesus did not set aside when He came from heaven to earth and took on our humanness. We need to see clearly the glory that Jesus actually showed us. And it was the same glory that God proclaimed to Moses as he passed in front of him in Exodus 34. It was the glory of God's character, of God's name. Jesus wasn't much to look at, right? Isaiah 53 says that. He's like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. But to those who treasured his word, to those who saw His works and saw that the witness of the Father concerning the Son was true to them, to us who believe. Here's what we get to know about our God. Yahweh passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet 
he will by no means, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We got to see all of that glory on perfect display at the cross. Not in part, in full. We have beheld the glory of God's character perfectly. You may say, well, I I wasn't there. I didn't get to see it. Beloved, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart. You get to behold the glory of Jesus Christ even more clearly than the disciples got to see it. They were still confused at this point. But we get to behold the glory of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word concerning Christ. And the whole thing that we've got here is the Word concerning Christ. We're not waiting for God to give us what we need to know Him. We have beheld the glory of God's character perfectly in the person and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And that, that, guys, is the glory that you and I need to behold daily. That's the glory we need to know intimately. That's the glory that we bear to this world as ambassadors of the source of that glory. That's the glory that we need to show off by the way we live. Every single day of the short time that remains to us on this earth until we come to stand in His glorious presence forever. Dear Father, we acknowledge to You that Your beloved Son, Jesus, showed us in word and in deed everything that we need to know about You now. Everything we need so that we may know You and trust You and love You and obey You with fullness of joy all the days that remain to us here and for all eternity. We thank You that the work that Jesus came to do is finished. It was finished at the cross. We thank You for giving us eternal life now and forever through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus in our place. We stand. (laughs) We stand in the amazing grace of Your gift to us in Jesus. Joyfully ready to do the works that You prepared beforehand for us to do. Use us, Father, to set this glorious gift before every man, woman, and child. That all whom You have given to Your Son might be saved. We ask it in in Jesus' precious name.